Anything that God has ever done at any time and anything that God has ever done for anyone, He can do for us. Welcome to the Plainfield Christian Church Podcast. We hope that the message today encourages you. For additional resources to inspire you in your journey with Christ, go to plainfieldchristian.com. Enjoy today's podcast. Morning, church. Uh, My name's Luke. I get to serve here as one of the ministers at Plainfield Christian Church. And here is the truth that I want to impress on your hearts this morning. Anything that God has ever done at any time, he can do now. And anything that God has ever done anywhere, he can do here. And anything that God has ever done for anyone, he can do for us. You believe that? All right, well, let me tell you a story about it. Um, You know, we we came out of a series over the last few weeks where we've been talking about the difference that the resurrection and heaven make in our earthly lives, how the reality that Jesus is alive shapes how we live in the here and now. And this has kind of been the core message of the followers of Jesus all along, that Jesus is alive and that changes everything for us. And one time there was one of the early Christian leaders, a guy named Paul, who went through the ancient city of Athens bringing that message and I want to read with you what happens when he does. It's a long text, but I want you to hang with me. Acts chapter 17, here's what happens when Paul goes through Athens saying that Jesus is alive. It says, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods? They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and his resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. So here's the scene. Paul is in Athens, and he's about to stand up before the greatest philosophical minds of his day, this group called the Areopagus, and they would meet on a place there in Athens called Mars Hill. I have a picture of Mars Hill. I got to go there a few weeks ago. This is the view standing on Mars Hill, these little rocks, and you'll notice that in the background is the famous Acropolis of Athens with the Parthenon and some other pagan temples. So imagine, keep this picture in your mind as we read about what Paul says standing right here on Mars Hill. It says this. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, people of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. You can almost imagine him just gesturing toward the Parthenon, right? He says, for as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. So you're ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. That's a gutsy thing to say in the shadow of the Parthenon. And he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made all nations that they should inhabit the whole earth and he marked out their appointed times and history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him And perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, 
We should not think that the divine being is like silver or gold or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. A lot of people will do that, by the way, when you tell them that Jesus is alive. But others said, we wanna hear from you again on this subject. After that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, and also a woman named Damaris and a number of others. So, Paul preaches this sermon, it's a good sermon, and there's some people who give their lives to Jesus. It's not like a huge, overwhelming conversion rate, but there in ancient Greece, a little church was born because Paul had the courage to stand up on Mars Hill before the great thinkers of his day and to say that Jesus is alive and some people believed. Now remember, anything that God has ever done at any time, he can do now. And anything that God has ever done anywhere, he can do here. And anything that God has ever done for anyone, he can do for us. And a few weeks ago, uh, when I got to be there in Athens, uh, standing on Mars Hill, I was there with a group of uh, 15 other pastors in my graduate school cohort, and we were there, and our professor was standing up on Mars Hill. He taught us for a little bit, and then he gave us 10 minutes. He just said, hey, just go spend some time sitting, thinking, praying, reflecting, reading. And so we all kind of scattered out across Mars Hill. We're sitting down there. And my friend Kevin Queen, uh, he's a preacher down in Nashville, a wonderful, godly man. And Kevin is there on Mars Hill. You know, he sits down for a few minutes doing his little praying, reading, reflecting, and and, and he, he reaches in his backpack, pulls out a pack of gum, wants a piece of gum, he sticks a piece of gum in his mouth, and then he realizes there's this dude, this random dude sitting by him, and Kevin's a nice guy, so he offers this guy a piece of gum, the guy takes the piece of gum, and then Kevin says, it's just like God just like impressed upon him deeply, like the Holy Spirit was just nudging him and convicting him, saying, you need to share the good news of Jesus with this guy. You need to tell him about the gospel. The only problem was the guy had his AirPods in, which is like the universal symbol for do not disturb, right? If you don't know that, you are one of the people that grind the rest of us like, okay, we're going to stop there. Um, And so Kevin's like, okay, I guess I'm supposed to share the good news with this guy, but I don't know how to start the conversation. And at this point, the 10 minutes are up, the, the class is getting around, ready to leave. And so Kevin's like, all right. And he starts praying. He says, Lord, if you really want me to do this, if you really want me to share the good news with this guy, you're going to have to like, give me some kind of word to say that's going to blow his mind. You got to really create a wide open door here for me to start the conversation because I don't see an opening. And so Kevin prays. He says, Lord, you got to do this. Crickets. Nothing happens, right? And so by this point, like the rest of the class, like we're way leaving Kevin in the dust. We're gone, right? And, and so Kevin stands up to leave and he starts walking down Mars Hill thinking, okay, I, I guess I missed my shot. When all of a sudden he hears a voice behind him saying, hey, I think you dropped this. And Kevin turns around and it's the guy. And he's holding Kevin's name tag. He says, here, I, I think you left your name tag on the ground. Well, it's like, uh, thank you, thank you, Jesus. You know, so, so Kevin walks up to the guy. He's like, all right, let's start the conversation. And Kevin says, uh, man, thank you so much. Tell me, what, what's your name? The guy says, my name's Robbie. And Kevin says, that's cool, I'm Kevin. He says, I know. You know? <laughs> um, <laughs> 
And, and Kevin's like, that's cool, man. Where, where are you from? And Robbie says, I'm from Tunisia. I grew, grew up in, in North Africa. And he says, where are you from? Kevin says, I'm, I'm from Tennessee. And uh, Robbie says, what are you guys doing here? And Kevin says, well, I'm with a group of pastors and we're kind of studying church history. And Robbie's like, well, yeah, I, I can see how this would be a good place to do that. And then if you've ever had a faith conversation with somebody, you know, there comes the moment where you gotta just kind of take the leap and go to the next level. And so Kevin decides, okay, let's do it. He says, what about you, Robbie? Are you a person of faith? And Robbie says, well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm more of a philosopher. I'm a, I'm a philosophy guy. I just, I just think everybody should have their own kind of philosophical explanation for how the world works and how to think about things. And I just have a hard time believing that there could possibly be a God when there's so much wrong in the world. I'm, I'm a justice guy. I value justice deeply. And Kevin said, yeah, I'm a justice guy too. That's why I find Jesus so compelling because Jesus came bringing grace and truth, justice and love. And Robbie pointed up to the Parthenon. He said, have you been up there? He said, because when I go up there, I, I feel close to God. And Kevin says, yeah, I have. Robbie, I think that's because God loves you. I think God's coming after you, Robbie. And by this point, the rest of us are like long gone. Kevin's getting stranded in Greece. Like he's, he's toast, you know? Um, and, and so he's, it's time to go. And, and Kevin just says, well, could, could we exchange phone numbers? And so they exchange phone numbers and Kevin has to leave. But as the rest of the day goes on, Kevin said he just like felt this continual burden that he wasn't done, that he needed to keep sharing the good news of Jesus with Robbie. So he's like, what do I do? I guess I could, I could ask him out to dinner. And so then Kevin has to wrestle with the weird thing of like, all right, how do you ask another dude out to dinner without it being awkward, you know? Um, and... And, and, and by this point, he's kind of told the rest of us about this. So we're praying for Kevin and we're praying for Robbie and he texts Robbie and he says, hey, would you want to go to dinner tonight? And um, I'll buy and we'll just continue our conversation. And Robbie says, yeah. So they go meet up at this little Greek cafe a few hours later, they're sitting together having dinner and Kevin says, Robbie, tell me your story. And Robbie says, well, I grew up in Tunisia in a Muslim family and you know, I, I would watch TV late at night and I watched this Christian TV show. I had to sneak it so my parents wouldn't see, but... They, they said that if you wanted a Bible, you could just call this number. And so I called this number and somebody drove 200 kilometers just to bring me a Bible when I was a kid. He said, I read that Bible a lot. I, I hid it from my bed so my parents wouldn't know. But then I just, I kind of stopped. And Kevin said, well, Robbie, could I just kind of tell you the story of that Bible that you read when you were a kid? Because it starts in Genesis chapter one and God, God made the world good and God made us good and God created us to choose him. But the problem is that we all chose ourselves and said, and that's where injustice comes from. That we've all chosen the way of, of selfishness and the Bible calls that sin and sin requires a sacrifice. And Kevin just walked him through the whole Old Testament. He fast forwarded all the way to Jesus. And he said, but the good news is Robbie, God didn't leave us alone in our injustice and our pain. He sent his son, Jesus. And the way that God brings justice and love is that God enforces the justice of the world on his son so that he absorbs it so that we don't have to. Jesus died for you, Robbie, so that God could establish his justice and his grace in the world. And then the good news is, Robbie, that Jesus rose again back to life and he's offering all of us that new life too. And Kevin just laid it out there. He said, Robbie, is there anything that's stopping you from becoming a follower of Jesus? Robbie said, well, I know if I did that, I'd, I'd have to like stop a bunch of the stuff I'm doing. Like I'd have to quit partying and quit sleeping around. And I just don't know if I can, I don't know if I can do that. I don't know if I can leave all that old life behind. And Kevin said, yeah, that is what it means. But the good news is, Robbie, that Jesus, when you become his follower, he actually comes and lives inside of you and he gives you a new heart and he's gonna change your desires, Robbie. Do you wanna become a follower of Jesus? And Robbie said, yeah. 
and, and they prayed there. And, and afterwards, Robbie said to Kevin, he said, you know that spot where we met today? That's my favorite place in the whole city. I go there like three times a week just to think. He had no idea about Paul, no idea about Acts 17, none of that. He said, and when I went there today to just sit and think, I just had this really sour taste in my mouth and I reached in my pocket to try to find a piece of gum, but I didn't have any. And that moment was when you reached around and gave me the piece of gum. <laughs> Crazy, right? That's the most divinely ordained dry mouth I've ever heard of, right? <laughs> most miraculous piece of double mint extra ever given, okay? Um, some people give out tracks. We give out gum. That's all it takes, you guys. We don't have to overcomplicate it. A stick of gum, a prayer, and a willingness to have a conversation. Look what God can do. Because anything that God has ever done at any time, he can do now. And anything that God has ever done anywhere, he can do here. And anything that God has ever done for anyone, he can do for us. That is my very long introduction to the sermon. You guys ready to jump in? <laughs> okay, here we go. Like Riley said, we're starting a new series today and we're calling it Renewal. And what we wanna do in this series is we just wanna tell some stories of the things that God has done throughout history, these revival and renewal movements, the way that God moves among a group of people who are committed to surrendering to him and obeying absolutely whatever he calls. And I don't want it to be a history lesson. We're not gonna get lost in names and dates, but we wanna use those stories just as a springboard to dream together about what God God might want to do here in and through us because we are in an incredible season as a church right now. We've been through COVID. We've been through a new worship center. We've been through a pastoral transition. Any one of those things would be a hand grenade for a church. But by the grace of God, we've come out healthy. And God is doing a work of deepening and unifying us and God is growing and diversifying our community and I believe that he has uniquely positioned us as a church to be his people at his time in this moment. He is awakening a sleeping giant here. I'm pumped to be a part of it. And so we just want to dream together about what that might look like because to lay our cards on the table, we didn't come into this season with some grand new vision or great big master plan or really well articulated five point strategy for how we're going to take it to the next level. And by God's grace, I do believe we're going to get toward those things. I want you to pray us and pray for us as we do. But we felt during this season as a leadership, we felt convicted that we're just going to wait on the Lord together. We're just going to hunger and thirst for him. And we're gonna wait until he moves and we're gonna listen and respond when he does because we just wanna dream together about what God might wanna do here in this series to do a work of renewal among us. And I don't know about you, but thinking about that gets me excited. These movements of revival when God moves among his people. Uh, there's a British preacher by the name of Martin Lloyd-Jones who wrote about this and, and he said this. He said, I do not understand Christian people who are not thrilled by the whole idea of revival. If there's one respect in which God confounds the wisdom of the wise more than any other, it is revival. We persist in thinking that we can set the situation right. We start a new society. We write a book. We organize a campaign. And we are convinced that we are going to hold back the tide. But we cannot. When the enemy comes in like a flood, it is the Lord who will raise and does raise the banner. The fact of revival proves, I say so clearly, again and again and again, the impotence and smallness of man left to himself. Now catch this. He says, the inevitable and constant preliminary to revival has always been a thirst for God. A thirst. A living thirst for a knowledge of the living God. And a longing and a burning desire to see him acting, manifesting himself and his power, rising and scattering his enemies. 
And this is proven true. If you look at movements of renewal and revival throughout history and throughout scripture, the one common core element to all of them is this. God comes where he's wanted. God comes where he's wanted. We just sang it. Scripture says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. God comes where he's wanted. And so our goal for this series is just that we would all leave wanting God together. That you would walk out of this place hungering for him, thirsty to know Jesus, longing to see him at work in your life and the life of our church and our community because we believe that anything that God has done at any time, he can do now. And anything that God has done anywhere, he can do here. And that anything God's done for anyone, he can do for us. And God comes where he's wanted. And so we wanna put ourselves in a position of readiness to, to answer God when he calls, to move when he moves, to become the kind of people that God can use. That's why all year long, we've talked about how we're gonna be a church with a Bible in one hand and a basin in the other. That we're gonna hold tight to the truth of God. We're gonna let this be the voice that shapes us. And we're also gonna model the lifestyle of love that Jesus modeled. We're gonna model a lifestyle of service as Jesus served when he picked up the basin and the towel and he washed his disciples' feet. This is how God will use us as we are a group of people with a Bible in one hand and a basin in the other because every renewal movement throughout history starts when God's people shed their selfishness and return to his word, the Bible and the basin. Uh, for example, um, this guy up here, this is Robert Germain Thomas. Check out that neck beard, right? Um, Robert Germain Thomas. In 1860, he was a missionary to Beijing, China, when he realized that in the nearby country of Korea, none of those people had heard the good news about Jesus. And so Robert Germain Thomas started a movement to get the Bible translated into Korean. It was a massive undertaking, but they did it. And so they got these Bibles, and then Robert and some other young people went on these missions to take these Bibles into Korea to share the good news of Jesus. But on just their second mission into the country, Robert was captured and executed at just 27 years of age. One of those Bibles, though, made it into the hands of a government official, just one government official, and he decided to read it. He thought, man, if that young man would give up his life for a book, there's gotta be something of significance in here. So he opened up the New Testament and he read it and he was blown away by the love that he found inside. But it was still illegal in Korea to own a Bible, and so what he did was he lovingly and gently tore the pages out of his New Testament, and he gently pasted them all over the walls of his home. And so then what he would do is he would invite his family and friends over. He'd say, come and read. Come and read, and people did. They came, and they stayed for hours reading and praying and taking notes and talking about what they read, and then they invited other people, their family and their friends, come and read so much so that from that one house, just 40 years later in the year 1900, the entire country had heard the good news. And social historians will tell you that there has never been a more Christian nation in history than South Korea. To this day, they still send out more missionaries than any other country in the world, including the United States. Look what God will do with one person who says, yeah, I'll live with the Bible in the basin. Yeah, I'll want God. And anything that God has done at any time, he can do now. And anything that God has done anywhere, he can do here. And anything that God has done for anyone, he can do for us. He comes where he's wanted. Now, you might remember um, at the beginning of the year, we dedicated this room with a prayer. 
We dedicated this room with a prayer from the prophet Habakkuk. Now, the book of Habakkuk is in your Old Testament. It's a really short book, just three chapters long. I don't know how long it's been since you've read Habakkuk, but I went back and read through it this week, and it was profound. It was deeply impactful for me. I'd encourage you to go read Habakkuk this week. And the book of Habakkuk is just this conversation that Habakkuk has with God, and it starts with just the core question. Habakkuk asks God, he says, God, what are you up to in the world? What are you doing? Because I don't quite understand it. And God gives Habakkuk a difficult answer to his question. He says, Habakkuk, actually, I'm using Babylon to judge my people for their unfaithfulness to me. And Habakkuk doesn't get it. He says, God, how could you do that? How could you allow this to happen? How could you allow your people to suffer like that? And even in the face of his confusion, God gives Habakkuk a promise. God says to Habakkuk, the righteous person will live by his faithfulness. God says, if you'll just trust me, if you'll just be faithful, here's the promise. Verse 14, God says, if all of us will be faithful, he says, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Man, I want to see that, don't you? Don't you want our community, don't you want this church to be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea? And that's what Habakkuk wanted too. And so he decided, okay, Lord, I'm gonna trust you. I'm gonna live by faithfulness in that promise. And so chapter three then of Habakkuk is just a prayer. Habakkuk says, okay, in light of that promise, I'm gonna pray. I'm gonna be devoted to prayer and I'm gonna want God to move. And so he remembers all the things that God has done for his people. He remembers back on God, you created the world. You made promises to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and you rescued your people from slavery by sending plagues on Egypt and parting the waters and giving us the 10 commandment and giving us water from a rock in the desert and bread from heaven. And then you parted the waters again to lead us to the promised land. And then you defeated our enemies. God, I'm gonna remember this. And in light of all this, here's Habakkuk's prayer and it's our prayer too. Chapter three, verse two. Habakkuk says, Lord, I've heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, Lord. Repeat them in our day. In our time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. God comes where he's wanted. And anything that God has ever done at any time, he can do now. And anything that God has ever done anywhere, he can do here. And anything that God has ever done for anyone, he can do for us. He comes where he's wanted. So my challenge to you today is this. Would you just memorize that prayer? Just one little verse. Would you make that your prayer for us and for our church, for your family, for your life in this season? Would you just say, Lord, we've heard of what you've done and we believe it and we want you. Would you do it again? Would you do it now? Would you do it here? Would you do it with us? Would you make that your prayer for us? Um, I'm no great music aficionado, but so I've been told, um, Johann Sebastian Bach is to music what um, Shakespeare is to literature or Sir Isaac Newton is to physics. And I think maybe the reason that Bach's music impacts people on a soul level is that it came from a soul level. Johann Sebastian Bach was a devoted follower of Jesus. He was somebody who's hungry and thirsty to see God at work in his life. And so before he wrote any piece of music, at the top of the page, Johann Sebastian Bach would write two letters, J-J. It stood for Yesu Yuva. It was a prayer. It said, Jesus, help me, before he wrote any piece of music. And then he'd write the piece of music. And at the very end, in the bottom margin of the page, he would write three other letters, S-D-G, Soli Deo Gloria, to God alone be the glory. Before he began, Jesus, help me. And after he ended, to God be the glory. And this is our prayer, right? Like, Jesus, we need you to help us. And when you move, we're gonna give you every shred of the glory. Um, 
I've gotten the privilege in my life to get to know a whole lot of different churches, different ministers of all kinds of different flavors. And um, I'm friends with several different African-American pastors. And um, things work a little differently in the black church. The, converse, the sermon is more of a conversation between the preacher and the congregation. The congregation kind of interacts and helps to shape the message a little bit. And we have a preaching team here at the church. There's six of us guys. We meet together every week to go over the sermon before it's preached and to review the sermon after it's preached. And we have this little sermon evaluation sheet that we use to kind of judge the sermon and evaluate it using different criteria. You can kind of use a, a scale of one to five there if you want to. But there's a black preacher by the name of Evans Crawford who also used the sermon evaluation sheet, but instead of using a scale of one to five, and for each of those numbers, he replaced them with a phrase that you would hear from the congregation as a preacher, depending on how you were doing. So if like things are not going well, if it's a one, he said, you'd hear, help him, Jesus. <laughs> I've been there before. Like, you know, if, I, if I'm preaching at a black church, I'm really up here, I'm just laying an egg. I'm gonna hear, help him, Jesus. Help him. And some of you, I need you to pray that for me on some days, right? Help him, Jesus. But then if the preacher's kind of climbing out of the mud a little bit, he's going somewhere, the congregation will say, well, we're at a two now. Well, well, you'll, you'll kind of hear that as you're preaching. Okay, he, he might be hitting on something solid now. Well, and then if, if he gets a little bit of momentum going, if, if the preacher's going somewhere, we're starting to move a little bit. He's saying some things that are, that, that are, that are impacting me a little bit that, that the congregation will say, okay, all right, that's all right. That's right, okay, we're at a three now, that's right. And then, and then if you're really moving, if, if, you, if you're dropping the mic a little bit, you know, if, if, you're giving some, if, if you're giving some real good, solid truth that meets the people right where they are, the congregation will say, amen. You're at a four. This is the one you guys know every great now and then, right? You say, amen, <laughs> amen. <laughs> but then, let me tell you, then when the spirit really anoints what's going on, when the, when the Holy Spirit falls on the preacher and the sword of the spirit is cutting God's people to the heart and something's really happening and Jesus is really speaking, when we're really rolling at a five, then the congregation will say, glory, hallelujah, glory, hallelujah, glory, hallelujah. And y'all are still quiet. Okay. Um, <laughs> All right, we'll get there. Um, <laughs> but that is the aim and the goal of our lives and our preaching, right? Like we wanna live in such a way, I wanna preach in such a way that people see that God is at work in our lives and we don't get the credit, but people just say glory, hallelujah, right? This is what we wanna see. Glory, hallelujah. And, and maybe I get it, like in this kind of church, you'll maybe just like say it deep down inside somewhere quietly to yourself. They say it out loud in the black church, okay? Can I get one to help me out today? Thank you. We can do this together. All right. Um, one of my preaching heroes is Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Um, he was not a perfect man. None of us are, but he was God's man. And, uh, you know, a lot of people today, most of the world thinks of him as an activist, but Dr. King thought of himself as a minister. He was a preacher. He was the son of a preacher, the grandson of a preacher, the great grandson of a preacher. He had a congregation. Dr. King was a preacher. And this was his motivation. That's why his movement was so successful. It was a Bible and basin type movement. He was soaked and shaped by God's word. And that's what led him to the basin and towel kind of civil rights movement that he led, where we're gonna do nonviolent resistance. It was a basin and towel kind of people. That's why God was allowed to move there. In fact, I believe that Dr. King's most famous speech became his most famous speech not because he was the world's greatest orator or they had the world's greatest strategic plan, but because the word of God and the spirit of God showed up. Now, you know the speech. You've heard it before on August 28th, 1963, there in Washington, D.C., where Dr. King famously announced, I have a dream. 
But that was not actually the first time that Dr. Martin Luther King had spoken those words about the dream. He was a traveling preacher, and so he would use some material over and over again. My dad's a traveling preacher. I grew up traveling around with him. I heard him preach hundreds of sermons, and by that I mean I heard him preach about five sermons hundreds of times, okay? That's how that works. And uh, he's gonna be here later in the fall. Would you tell him I said that, please? Um, And you guys are gonna hear my material over and over again. That's how it works. And the people who traveled with him had heard that line and that material before. And one of the people who traveled with Dr. King was the world-famous gospel singer Mahalia Jackson. And oftentimes, Mahalia Jackson, she would get up to sing before Dr. King would preach. And the night before his famous speech on August 28th, 1963, there in D.C., Martin Luther King Jr. was down in his hotel in the lobby with his advisors and they were going over his speech for the next day. He was gonna be the last speaker at a huge, huge rally. He was gonna be speaker number, count them, 16. 16 preachers, okay? And, and, and they'd only given him eight minutes to speak. His advisors were kind of upset about that because there's gonna be a quarter of a million people there at the Washington Mall. There's gonna be millions more watching on television. And after hours of going over the speech, finally, midnight rolls around and Dr. King stood up and excused himself. He said, gentlemen, I'm going to my room to counsel with the Lord. And the next morning when he got up to speak, he had his eight minutes there scripted out. But none of the I have a dream part was in the notes. We actually still have his manuscript from that day and nowhere does it mention a dream. Instead, later he he talked about how he realized he was gonna be standing and speaking in front of the Lincoln Memorial and so he wanted his speech to sound kind of like the Gettysburg Address. He wanted to sound more like a statesman and less like a preacher. Now it was hot that day. August 28th, quarter of a million people standing outside since noon, almost four hours in the summer heat, speaker after speaker, people are sweating, they're growing restless, and before Dr. King gets up to speak, Mahalia Jackson stands up to sing, the crowd kind of quiets down, and Dr. King steps up to the microphone. And he starts, if you've seen the video, you know, he starts by reading his manuscript, real slow. He says, five score years ago, A great American in whose symbolic shadow we stand today signed the Emancipation Proclamation. And you can hear the audience begin to murmur. Well, well, we're at a two now. You know, he's he's got good things to say. He's got important things to say. So he keeps reading his manuscript and they keep listening. He says, in gaining our rightful place, we must not be guilty of wrongful deeds. We cannot satisfy our thirst for freedom by drinking from the cup of hatred. And the crowd's nodding along now. That's right. We're at a three now. That's right. Okay. That's right. And he keeps going. He continues to speak and he continues to build and he builds up to what you think is going to be the end of the speech. And Dr. King says, there are those who ask the leaders of civil rights When will you be satisfied? We can never be satisfied. As long as the Negro is the victim of police brutality, we can never be satisfied. As long as our children are robbed of dignity by signs that say whites only, no, we can never be satisfied until justice rolls down like water and righteousness like a mighty stream. And when he quotes those words from Amos chapter five, the people are cheering, they're clapping. You can hear them. Amen, amen, preacher, amen. We're at a four now, amen, preacher. But that sounds like he's hit the climax. 
That's it. That's the end. That's the conclusion. That's as far as his notes go. That's as high as we're going to get. We're not going to get to number five. No glory. Hallelujah moment today. Sometimes that's as far as our planes will take us, you know. But if you watch the video, you can see that sitting right behind Dr. King as he's speaking is Mahalia Jackson. And there as he finishes in his conclusion, there's a pause And in that moment, remember, we're in the black church and the congregation helps to shape the sermon. So Mahalia Jackson pipes up and she says, tell them about the dream, Martin. Tell them about the dream. She'd heard that part before. And it's not in his notes, but at that moment, you can watch this on film. Dr. King sets his notes off to the side of the lectern. And one of his advisors, Clarence Jones, was also sitting beside him at that moment. And Clarence Jones later said that when he saw Dr. King set his notes off to the side, he leaned over to the guy next to him and he said, these people don't know it, but they're about to go to church. (laughs) (laughs) And he later said that when I saw Dr. King set his notes off to the side, I knew that he's about to go from speeching to preaching. And Dr. King, he'd been memorizing God's word Ever since he was five years old, he was a Bible and a basin kind of guy. So I don't know, but I'm thinking that at that moment, there are passages like Isaiah chapter two and Isaiah chapter 11 and Isaiah chapter 65 that just start running through his veins. New heavens, new earth, redeemed humanity, swords beaten into plowshares. All men are brothers, world at peace. This is where he got the dream. And so he begins and he tells him, I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, sons of former slaves and sons of former slave owners will sit together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream that one day down in Alabama, little black boys and little black girls will join hands with little white boys and little white girls. I have a dream that one day my four little children will be judged not by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream that one day every valley will be exalted and every hill and mountain shall be made low and every rough place made smooth and every crooked place shall be made straight and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it. This is our hope. (laughs) And in that moment, as that huge congregation there on the Washington Mall hears those words from Isaiah chapter 40, they got it, they caught the dream and you can hear them. Glory, hallelujah. Hallelujah. Glory, hallelujah. Glory, hallelujah. And he went from eight minutes to 16 minutes. So it happens, guys, okay? Um, (laughs) I'm no Martin Luther King Jr. But anything that God has done at any time, he can do now. And anything that God has done anywhere, he can do here. And anything that God has done for anyone, he can do for us. And he comes where he's wanted. And we have a dream. We have a dream for this church. We have a dream of a church that is so bonded in love and so devoted to prayer that when people see us, when people come in here, they say, surely God is in this place. Glory, hallelujah. We have a dream 
of a church that is knit together in such radical unity where the generations lay down their preferences and they use their gifts to serve one another instead of compete against each other. We have a dream of a church where the nations come side by side to worship. We have a dream of a church where the lost are found and the lonely find community. We have a dream of a church where the waters of that baptistry are never stilled and addictions are broken and marriages are healed and ministers are trained and missionaries are sent and children grow up soaking in the truths of God. God's word and every spiritual gift is leveraged for the good of the kingdom. We have a dream of a community that when people look in and they see this place with these people, a Bible in one hand and a basin in the other, they will know that Jesus is alive. So Lord, we have heard of your fame. We stand in awe of your deeds. Renew them in our day. In our time, make them known. We have a dream for this church and we know that you do too. Jesus, help us. To God be the glory. And all God's people said, amen, amen. amen. If this is gonna happen, if you're gonna become the person God wants you to be, if we're gonna become the church God wants us to be, it's not gonna happen by our strength, it's gonna happen by his. And so we wanna be a church that is devoted to prayer. So you're gonna notice here over the next few minutes some people gathering around the outside of the room and there in the backside of the room, kind of around the edges here. And that's the members of our new prayer team. We're launching that today and they'll be up every week. And every week after the sermon, you're gonna have an opportunity to go pray with them. If, if there's anything going on in your life, spiritual weakness, physical weakness, relational problems, sin problems, wh- whatever it is, we wanna talk with you, we wanna pray with you, we wanna speak God's truth over you, we wanna walk with you and care for you well in those moments. So I'd encourage you to go pray with them. Even today, they'll be up for the rest of the service. You can just walk over there, pray with them at any time. They'll be there a little bit after the service as well. Even if you just wanna pray together for what God's doing in your life or in this church or somebody that you know. And there's some of you in the room today that you've heard about what Jesus has done for other people, but you don't know if he could actually do it for you. And he can. He loves to make things new and he can make you new today. Today's the day of salvation. Please don't put it off. You can go talk to the members of the prayer team. We would love to walk with you to discover new life in Jesus. And for those of us who have found that new life in Jesus, you can take out your communion now. We celebrate this together every week, the way that Jesus made us new by dying for us and rising for us. So I'll give you a moment to take this bread on your own. And as you do, would you just ask him to keep making you new, to keep making us new? And then I'll pray and we'll take the juice together. Take a moment. Jesus, we believe you're alive. And we believe that you still move and that you're still strong and that you're still good and that you wanna use us. We don't even know what that looks like, Lord, but we're here for it. We're along for the ride. So I'm asking for my brothers and sisters and for myself that you would give us ears to hear you when you speak. You give us the courage to obey you. And that for those here in the room today, even who who have not surrendered to you or who are weak today, give them the courage to approach a brother or sister on the prayer team to pray together and receive your strength. We're gonna take this juice, Lord, that represents your blood that spilled from Jesus' side to wash us clean in your sight. And we just thank you for making us new. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. This is the blood of Jesus. 